It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello there, David. Hello. We have exciting news for our listeners. We do, and it involves slipping and falling, which we as comedians think is funny, but for most people who do it, it's not so much. Wednesday, April 12th, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be partnering with the American Museum of Tort Law to bring you a conversation with slip, trip, and fall expert and author Russell Kenzior. So go to ralphnaderradiohour.com to sign up to be in our live Zoom audience with me and David and Ralph and Hannah and the whole gang. How about that, David? And you get to meet Ralph. And if you so wish, you can raise your hand and ask questions and possibly be heard on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. You are correct, sir. Or you can just watch how the sausage is made. That's right. And we we're going to be making sausages, by the way. We will be. We'll be. It'll be a cookout. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be featuring the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, Steve, David, Hannah. Before we begin the proper features part of the show, you had some comments about Medicaid and expansion, especially in places like Mississippi. What's going on there? Well, the eminently impeachable governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, has refused to take federal money available on the table to expand the Medicaid services for the poor people in Mississippi. And as a result, Rural hospitals are closing down. They relied heavily on the Medicaid money that came in during the pandemic, and they're closing down. And he knows all this. He knows there are people who are going to die, get sicker, or more injured because they can't afford insurance to get medical services. On a bigger scale, is this alarming headline in the New York Times on April 4th, quote, millions at risk of soon losing their Medicaid, pandemic shield to end with an unwinding. So up to 15 million people in the next few weeks and months can be dropped from Medicaid because the deadline is up for continuing it that started with the pandemic and COVID-19. And so state officials now are calling people and basically saying, I'm sorry, you no longer qualify for Medicaid. And there they are, all by their lonesome in the land of the free, home of the brave. Well, featured on today's show, we're going to talk about the U.S. military budget. Last month, the Pentagon released its budget request for fiscal year 2024, $842 billion. We can always count on Congress to be generous with the military. Last year, they added $45 billion to the Pentagon's requested budget. They added that. So we could be looking at the highest military budgets since World War II. That's according to our first guest, Quincy Institute Senior Research Fellow, William Hartung. Mr. Hartung is an expert on the arms industry and the military budget. He'll join us to discuss our ever-ballooning military spending, where that money will go, whether we need all that money to defend ourselves and our allies, and who in Congress is fighting to reverse the trend. Then, we've been looking forward to this for a while, our second guest will be peace activist Cindy Sheehan. 20 years ago, on March 20th, 2003 local time, the United States invaded Iraq. 19 years ago, on April 4, 2004, U.S. Army Specialist Casey Sheehan was killed in an ambush in Baghdad. While George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, the New York Times, and the rest of the military-industrial complex urged the American people to support the troops by supporting the war in Iraq, Casey's mother, Cindy Sheehan, 
became a full-time anti-war activist. In the months following her son's death, she founded the group Gold Star Families for Peace, letting others know there were military families who believed the Iraq War was a crime. Her acts of protest and civil disobedience included camping out in front of George W. Bush's Texas ranch, protesting at the Washington Monument and the Pentagon, sit-ins at the White House, tax resistance, and running against war hawk Nancy Pelosi for her congressional seat. She came in second. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, every day is Christmas at the Pentagon. David? William Hartung is an expert on the arms industry, U.S. military budget, and a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is the author of Profits of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, and the co-editor of Lessons from Iraq, Avoiding the Next War. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, William Hartung. Yes, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Welcome again. First, I want to read a couple of paragraphs from a recent article to frame the new military budget that Biden sent up a few days ago to the Congress and what is likely to happen if we don't wake up to make it even bigger, thanks to senators like Jack Reed, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Democrat from Rhode Island. Let me just quote listeners a few lines here so you can get some quantitative idea of what we're dealing with. Quote, the Pentagon has released its budget request for fiscal year 2024. The figure for the Pentagon alone is a hefty $842 billion. Total spending on national defense, including work on nuclear weapons at the Department of Energy, comes in at $886 billion. The proposed budget is far more than is needed to provide an effective defense for the United States and its allies. Unfortunately, and this is key, listeners, there's a danger that Congress will once again add tens of billions of dollars to the Pentagon's total based on parochial financial interests rather than a careful assessment of what the United States needs to defend itself and its allies. And he gives the last two years budget cycle. Congress as a whole added $25 billion and $45 billion to the Department of Defense budget, and much of it went to weapons programs in key members of Congress congressional districts. So, Bill, this is pork barrel on steroids. I mean, when they start pouring more tax money into the military budget from Capitol Hill than the generals asked for, than Biden asked for. We're in a new dimension of an out-of-control, continually unaudited Pentagon budget. So when you say it's key members that get some of this pork, can you give us some ideas? Well, for example, as a representative from Maine, Jared Golden, who sort of led the charge a couple of years ago for adding to the budget. And it's interesting, often they put Democrats forward as the ones pushing the amendments to increase beyond what the Pentagon asked for because the Republicans are kind of already on board, mostly. But anyway, he added a $2 billion ship built in Maine, where he's based, that was not asked for by the Navy. Representative Elaine Luria helped add $4.7 billion to the shipbuilding budget. And she and other members from Virginia have the Newport News shipbuilding operation, which builds aircraft carriers and attack submarines. They wouldn't even let them retire certain things. There's a ship called the Literal Combat Ship, which is supposed to operate near the coasts of adversaries and supposed to be anti-submarine and anti-mine and 
could do none of those things because it was so bad that the Pentagon wanted to retire them well short of their service lives. And a business group from Jacksonville, where a lot of the repairs are done on the ship, worked with representatives from Florida and Virginia to block the Navy from retiring those ships. So, you know, not only do they add things, but they don't let the Pentagon shift gears when it wants to get rid of old things and, you know, shift to other things. I thought that was one of the more powerful points in your article. The Pentagon wants to get rid of some of these weapon system programs. And the Congress says, oh, no, we're going to continue them because, as they tell reporters, it's a jobs program. It creates jobs or it retains jobs that are already in shipyards and elsewhere. Of course, you know, you can never get these members of Congress to understand that a billion dollars in civilian infrastructure investment in this country creates far more jobs than a highly capital intensive billion dollars in another unneeded weapon system. Then you list some of them. The B-1 bomber, which is a, a real boondoggle from the get-go, F-22, F-15 combat aircraft, aerial refueling planes, C-130 and C-40 transport aircraft, E-3 electronic warfare planes, HH-60W helicopters, and what you mentioned, the literal combat ships or the LCSs. Pentagon wanted to mothball these, and the Congress said no. So then it comes up to people like Jack Reed and others, and here we go again. So they added $25 billion two years ago, $45 billion to the defense budget last year, and then Biden started at that level. So my question is, if they asked for so much more, why does the Biden administration start at that level instead of back to the level that they proposed to Congress in the prior year? Well, it's all politics and money, of course. It's sort of like, you know, given that Congress put that in there for their own pork barrel reasons, much of it done by Democrats, they didn't want to fight that fight. But also there's sort of this perception, the way it's covered in the press, you know, if he had started at his level that he requested the year before and not the level with all that Congress added, he would have been slammed for, quote, reducing the Pentagon budget, when in fact, it's gone up $100 billion in the last two years, which is more than the military budget of any country in the world except China. So these are enormous sums. I mean, it's bigger than far than during Vietnam or Korea or the height of the Cold War. It's about $400 billion more adjusted for inflation than when Eisenhower gave that cross of iron speech where he basically said money spent on the military is a theft from people's needs and essentially should only be done to the degree absolutely necessary. So we're we're far from, you know, the world that he described, which already you know, is skewed heavily towards the military over other needs. Well, let's go over the people in Congress who've got it right, who are trying to reduce the military budget, squeeze some of the vast waste, redundancy, military contracting cycles like F-35, which may end up costing about a trillion dollars, never mind the maintenance costs. Tell us about the few members of Congress who are sane in this situation, and tell us are there any other groups around the country like Veterans for Peace or others who are lobbying Congress against the massive pro-bigger military contractors lobby, which you say have over 800 full-time lobbyists on Capitol Hill, never mind back home? What's the opposition like? Well, the key leaders in the House are Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan, and they have a bill called People Over Pentagon that would cut $100 billion as, as a beginning on getting a more more sane 
level of military spending. And they're building support now, co-sponsors, and they're, they're starting to get some traction, but they're still a minority, but the idea is to build over time. And so groups like Public Citizen, my organization, the Quincy Institute, Friends Committee for National Legislation, number of environmental groups like Friends of the Earth, some immigration reform groups have come together supporting this People Over Pentagon Act. So that's kind of the nexus of, you know, sort of the battle to bring it back down to reality. Have any of these groups or members of Congress got public hearings in the House Armed Services or Senate Armed Services Committees? I mean, that's the next step. There hasn't been hearing of that sort. There was when Bernie Sanders ran the Budget Committee, he did a hearing on the Pentagon budget with critics, including myself. But, you know, one hearing, given that the, you know, the military leadership floods the Hill every year with, you know, dozens of hearings, they do hearings where they hear only from the heads of the weapons companies. It's, um, you know, it, it's an unequal debate in Congress. They don't really hear in detail in a hearing kind of setting the critiques. Well, we're talking with William Hartung, arms and weapons expert. For many years, he's now a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. I've often thought that the best investment in America in terms of what you put in and what you get back is the military weapons industry's investment in members of Congress. For a pittance of campaign contributions, they get back billions and billions of dollars. Give us an example of what Congressman Mike Rogers, who is now, thanks to the Democrats' debacle last November, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, and Congressman Ken Calvert, who's the new chair of the Defense Appropriations Committee, are getting in campaign cash from these corporations like Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Yeah, it's interesting because they started giving them money in large quantities before they even took over the committees. They were sort of laying down their bets that these were going to be the people. And so in the last cycle, Mike Rogers got over half a million dollars from the arms industry. And Ken Calvert, who runs the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee of Appropriations. So those are the two big committees, Armed Services, Defense Appropriations. They have the most power over the size and shape of the Pentagon budget. Calvert got about 450000 So they're just being flooded with money. But as you said, you know, I think the whole industry gave $82 million over a couple cycles. But they get, in a given year, the top five alone could get $150, $200 billion just among them. And one year, Lockheed Martin, recent year, got $75 billion all by themselves, which is larger than the budget of the State Department and the Agents for National Development combined. So it's it's kind of like a just a snapshot of what's wrong with our foreign policy. And a lot of it is driven by this pork rail politics and lobbying by these contractors. Well, it's quite clear now that after the demise of the Soviet Union, the military-industrial complex is looking for more enemies. And Iran wasn't quite big enough. You know, with its 75 million people and a GDP smaller than Massachusetts, it didn't quite qualify. So with the help of Hillary Clinton in her notorious speech at the Naval Academy in Annapolis called the Pivot to Asia, now China is qualifying as the reason for Jack Reed and others to keep adding to the military budget beyond what the generals have asked for. Now, you've made a very strong point, and I want you to dwell on this, when you said that the problem with China is more political and economic than military. What do you mean by that? Well, China's power, you know, relative to the United States, 
really has to do with its relations with other countries, its investment in other countries, the growth of its economy. In military terms, it still lags far behind the United States in spending. The United States spends about two and a half times what China spends. The U.S. has more advanced military technology, a stronger Navy, many more nuclear weapons. If, if you look at the stockpiles, probably 13 times what China has. And, and the real issues that are being raised have to do with things close to China's shores. And of course, Taiwan is the biggest of those. But Taiwan should be a diplomatic issue. It should be about maintaining the understanding that kept the peace there for, uh, you know, going back to the 1970s, which basically says the U.S. will not recognize Taiwan as an independent country, and China will agree not to integrate it by force. And there's other, you know, ancillary points. But basically, the Biden administration has been engaging in rhetoric that makes it seem like they're no longer in support of that policy. And of course, you've had major leaders visit Taiwan, which is, gives a kind of an aura of political endorsement by the American leadership. So that's not going to be solved militarily. And in fact, if there were a war between the U.S. and China, it would be an unprecedented disaster for all concerned. I mean, they're both nuclear powers. The idea of sending large numbers of troops and ships and so forth thousands of miles away to fight China right in its front yard is not necessarily a winning proposition, no matter how much money you spend. So rather than ratcheting up this rhetoric about war with China, I mean, there was a general who basically said, oh, yeah, we'll be at war with them by 2025. That kind of rhetoric is so irresponsible. But it does, of course, create an atmosphere of fear that makes it easier to sell large Pentagon budgets. And, and as the war on terror was winding down and fewer troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, the Pentagon came forward with a national defense strategy that said, oh, it's about great powers now, it's about China. And Congress created a commission to critique the strategy. And Congress, that commission said, oh, actually, the Pentagon's understating it. We need to spend more than even they're proposing, 3 to 5% a year above inflation, which would put us over a trillion, which is where we're heading you know, very soon at the rate we're going. But that commission was replete with people who were on the boards of military companies, at think tanks funded by military companies, consultants to the military industry. So the sort of construction and hyping of the China threat had the fingerprints of the industry all over it. You know, there's also anti-China ideologues in the mix, but there's a, a strong financial conflict of interest element to it. Well, as some military people have said, if you're preparing for war and you lace it with belligerent rhetoric, you're going to get a war. Do you think we're fueling an arms race? I mean, if the backers are all these defense contractors, you know, they start saying, look at China, they've developed hypersonic missiles. We're behind. Here we go again. The missile gap. You think it's fueling an arms race with China? Oh, definitely. You know, the, the whole hypersonic issue, these things may never work. I mean, Star Wars is a perfect example of over-investing in kind of technological fantasies. And I think we could be headed down that road again. But you know, it's it's become kind of the weapon du jour in Washington, along with artificial intelligence. And it's, you know, it's going to be a huge money sink. And of course, they're pointing to China's nuclear capabilities. They've built some more missile launch tubes, but it's not clear they actually have missiles in them. And, you know, they, for years, had two or 300, you know, long-range nuclear missiles versus thousands for the United States. And as the U.S. has engaged in this across-the-board modernization, so-called, you know, new bombers, new intercontinental ballistic missiles, new sea-launched nuclear-armed cruise missiles, a whole new generation of nuclear warheads, and, of course, the heated rhetoric about China. 
it looks like they're going to nudge up the size of their arsenal. But even if they tripled it, they would still be far behind the United States. But the, you know, the the industry and the kind of the China hawks are pointing to that as yet another reason why we have to spend more. And of course, if you used about 100 nuclear weapons, you would end life as we know it. So the idea of building more, quote unquote, for defense is absurd. But I, I think there's kind of a understanding or a popular myth that more is better. It's, you know, an insurance policy when actually it could lead us to, you know, down the road to disaster. Well, let's go into this section in one of your articles where you have Brown University's Cost of War Project has identified U.S. counterterror operations in at least 85 countries. 85 countries, we've got forces, we've got bases in over 100 countries, and we basically have a policy where the president can order our military anywhere, anytime, destroy, kill, never mind international law, national boundaries, and Republican and Democrat presidents have been reflecting that empire range of activity. Let me ask you something that I've been curious about. The Trident submarine, of which we have how many, built in Groton, Connecticut. Could you tell our listeners how many cities could be wiped out by the multiple warheads of one Trident submarine, how long it would take to destroy those cities, and how many of these Trident submarines do we already have, apart from the ones we're already building? Well... The multiple missiles with the multiple warheads could destroy close to 200 cities. And depending where in, at sea they're located, it would be a half hour or less to bring that about. And In the whole world? Yeah, worldwide. And there's on the order of 12 of them. So it, it's huge overkill. And there's, you know, there was a whole civil disobedience campaign against those submarines by people in the War Resisters League and, and other pacifist groups. That should have gotten more attention than it did. Some of those people did time in jail. They were trying to raise the alarm about Kings Bay, Georgia, where they based some of these submarines. And I think they were an inspiration to the peace movement. I mean, people felt like, well, if they can take that kind of risk, I should be doing more. But it didn't break through on the national scale the, the way, say, civil disobedience during the Vietnam War did. And it's because we don't have a mass peace movement at the moment, even though we have a lot of good organizations working hard to try to turn that around. Let's talk about one effort Congress has a pulse on. And you mentioned it. It's the Foreign Assistance Act, 502B. And you say that it's being invoked by Senators Chris Murphy, Democrat Connecticut, Mike Lee, Republican Utah, to require a State Department report on Saudi Arabia's human rights practices, which could serve as a step towards further action, up to and including a cutoff of security assistance to Riyadh. And this would be the first time that provision has been invoked since 1976. This relates to U.S. weapons being used by the Saudis in Yemen, where there have been horrific casualties and one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. Tell us a little about that. Yes. Well, there's a, a number of arms control and human rights organizations that for a while have been saying this provision of law, 502B, should be invoked by the Congress to deal with some of these reckless, irresponsible, devastating arms transfers. And one of the groups is CIVIC, which works on issues of protecting civilians in conflict. And so it ends up this provision, 502B, had not been used since the 70s. So Congress had never really taken advantage of it. But Senators Murphy and Lee were persuaded that this was one way at the problem. And part of it was congressional frustration 
with the Biden administration, which had said it was going to take a tough line on the Saudis. When he ran for president, Biden called the Saudis a pariah. His first foreign policy speech, he said he was going to stop support for offensive operations in Yemen. When they sided with Russia on oil prices, he said there would be consequences, and there were none. He did stop one sale of precision-guided bombs, but he made some arms sales to the Saudis. So members of Congress who for years have been looking to cut off arms to Saudi Arabia because of things like what it's done in Yemen, as well as how it treats its own population and crimes like the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. You know, Congress was looking for a tool to try to impose some consequences on the Saudis. And so this is the tool that they're employing at the moment. And once this report comes in, they have the option of restricting some or all of U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And they've, it's kind of a follow-on. There was, have been efforts for the last few years to use the War Powers Resolution to cut off U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia. And that won in both houses under Trump, but he then vetoed it. And there hasn't been a successful vote during the Biden year. So this is sort of another way at the problem, using an existing tool that was sort of just lying there, ready for Congress. And there's a couple of members finally picking up and, and running with it. Same federal law applies to the Israeli government, which is that no weapon sales or military assistance can go to a government that uses these weapons offensively. Well, it's quite clear the Israeli military has been using these weapons offensively against the Palestinians. They're bombing regularly Syria. They just bombed Damascus again. They're using these weapons against Iran, and it continues year after year. Yeah, somehow people who want to invoke this restriction properly against the Saudis don't want to apply it to the Israelis, including Senator Murphy. What's the situation there? Well, it's a political situation. I mean, there's the Israel lobby. There's the levels of support for Israel within the United States. There's just very few members who will step up and criticize. Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Jamal Bowman in the House recently spoke out. And, and said, you know, we've got to take another look at why we're supplying all this unconditional military aid to Israel. But it's it's tough going. I mean, there's groups trying to raise the issue, you know, non-governmental organizations, but it's, it's hard to get a foothold in Congress. What would you do, Bill, about mobilizing the public here? I, everything starts back home with the people. They've got to say, look, we've got to pay attention to our domestic necessities. We have huge child poverty, crumbling infrastructure. We don't have adequate preparation for pandemics or epidemics. We've got a serious drinking water contamination problem, serious soil erosion problem, all kinds of deferred maintenance. What are we doing blowing up other parts of the world, creating more enemies and spending our taxpayer dollars this way, often illegally? So a strong case can be made, and you've made it over the years. But how do you connect? Do you have any recommendations to our listeners other than contacting their members of Congress? Yeah, I think there's some groups that are better organized than others. The Friends Committee on National Legislation builds power in, in key districts, and, and they have people who are trained in how to you know deal with their member of Congress, trained on the issues so they're articulate about them. They try to build coalitions that include kind of the traditional peace movement, religious groups, business groups, sort of a broader representation of the members' district. And, and so I think that that approach has a lot of promise. Groups like National Priorities Project, which articulates these kinds of trade-offs, what we're giving up by spending so much on the military. I think, you know, the information is there. 
it's what's the best way to break through to the public. And because the mainstream press covers this only very episodically, you know, I, th I think we need to build the independent press and make it stronger and just spread it organizationally through the organizations that people are a part of. And I think there's kind of, I see kind of three pillars. You know, one is, you know, what are the costs of this, the opportunity costs, which is what Eisenhower spoke about in his Cross of Iron speech in 1953. What do we need to defend ourselves? Because some people will say, oh, yes, you know, I would love this money for clean water and these other priorities. But, you know, if China's going to wipe us off the face of the earth, that has to come first. So we need public education to lower the temperature and the kind of demonization of other countries that allows the Pentagon to kind of ride that climate of fear to higher and higher budgets. And then I think people need to feel like they can influence the government. I think a lot of people have given up. They forget that citizens' movements have had tremendous victories in the past and can do so again. And they just kind of say, oh, yeah, I know. They're wasting our money. Maybe we shouldn't be fighting these wars. But, you know, what can I really do about it? So I think it's it's sort of empowerment, it's public education, and it's better organization. I do think there's quite a bit of activism in the younger generation. It's not concentrated in the traditional peace movement. It's it's about climate. It's about racial justice. But you know those issues can be kind of married up with peace issues because of the issue of where the resources are going. And there's groups trying to do that. And I think you know we need a renovated peace movement. And and I think. We need some younger leadership to sort of show us the way. And I think that is possible to bring about. I know there was a period of time when I would give a talk to a peace group and I would be the youngest person in the room starting, you know, maybe in my 40s, this would happen. Sometimes it still happens, which is crazy because I'm 67 now, you know. But I think there's pockets of resistance and organizing and creativity in younger generations. And, and it's been focused on other urgent issues. But I think we can bring people together. I mean, if you look at the Poor People's Campaign, you know, they're building on issues of racial justice, stopping the war machine, environmental restoration. They're building chapters all over the country. And it's a focal point for uniting some of these issues. So I, so I think, you know, one thing people can do if they're feeling disenfranchised is to join up with some of these existing groups. I mean, some of the chapters of Peace Action, which came out of the nuclear freeze campaign and the Ban the Bomb movement of the 50s, some of them are quite effective in public education and pushing their members and, you know, attaching oneself to a, a group that's already fighting the good fight sometimes is a shortcut to, mm -hmm. you know, being able to be effective as an individual. Good point. And uh, let's not forget about the year after year work of the Quakers and the Unitarians and the National Friends Committee on Legislation based in Philadelphia. We have been speaking with William Hartung, a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, Bill, and to be continued. Yes, thanks for having me. We've been speaking with William Hartung. We will link to his work at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we speak to the most prominent anti-war activist of the Iraq War, Cindy Sheehan. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, April 7, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A woman pulled alive from the rubble of a Pennsylvania chocolate factory after an explosion that killed seven co-workers says flames had engulfed the building in her arm when the floor gave way beneath her. That might have been the end if she hadn't fallen into a vat of liquid chocolate. The dark liquid extinguished the flame on her blazing arm, but Patricia Borges 
wound up breaking her collarbone and both of her heels. She would spend the next nine hours screaming for help and waiting for rescue as firefighters battled the inferno and choppers thumped overhead at the R.M. Palmer Company factory. When I began to burn, I thought it was the end for me, she told the Associated Press. The March 24 blast at the Palmer factory killed seven of Borges' co-workers and injured 10. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph and Hannah and the rest of the gang. Our next guest rose to prominence when she camped out in Crawford, Texas, to bring the Iraq War home to George W. Bush. David? Cindy Sheehan is the mother of Casey A. Sheehan, who was killed in action in Iraq on April 4th, 2004. She's an anti-war activist, the founder of Gold Star Families, and an organizer of the 2018 Women's March on the Pentagon. She is the author of Cindy Sheehan's Soapbox Newsletter on Substack. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Cindy Sheehan. Oh, it's so good to be here. Welcome indeed, Cindy. I learned about what you did down in Texas from Amy Goodman, who had you on the show when nobody was covering your encampment on the side of the road leading to the ranch of George W. Bush after he and Dick Cheney initiated their criminal war of aggression against Iraq, violating international law, federal statutes, and the U.S. Constitution. You lost your beloved son, Casey, and you decided to do something direct. You weren't waiting for other people to get on board. Explain how this came about, and once you encamped, how people began rallying until you became a national phenomena. Thank you, Ralph. So I was home in my home in Vacaville, California, and it was August 4th, 2005. It was a little over a year since Casey was killed, and I was watching the news, and George Bush was already on vacation in Crawford, Texas. But he was doing a press conference. 12 Marines had been killed, I think, in Anbar province in Iraq on that day. And he said to the press corps, the families of the loved ones can rest assured that their loved ones died for a noble cause. So I was waiting for the corporate press, any member of his, you know, the White House press corps, to ask him what was a noble cause. And not one of them did. And I was going to Texas the next day for the Veterans for Peace Convention in Dallas. And I just thought, you know what? I have a voice. If nobody else is going to ask him, after I speak at the convention on Friday, the next day, Saturday on August 6th, I'm going to, you know, just rent a car and drive to Crawford, Texas, wherever that is, and demand a, a meeting with him to ask him what noble cause my son was killed for. And not just my son, but, you know, thousands of Iraqis at that time and hundreds of U.S. troops. What's a noble cause that's killing, you know, so many people, so many innocent people. Even our troops, I believe, were victims of U.S. imperialism at that time. And so Amy did cover Camp Casey for sure. But soon after I got there, I think the same day that I was there, overnight, it became this like international phenomenon. I put my farm number on a press release saying I was going and I was up all night answering calls from people 
all over the world. And I think that we know on February 15th, 2003, millions of people around the entire world went out in protest of the Iraq war, but it started anyway. And after it started, the anti-war movement against the Iraq war kind of was in a stasis. And when people saw me literally camping on the side of Prairie Chapel Road, very near to George Bush's ranch, I think it just sparked a renewal of interest and a renewal of anti-war sentiment. We had thousands of people, probably over 20,000. We tried to keep track, but it was impossible. Came out to Crawford for the about three weeks we were there that summer. And we had thousands of solidarity encampments, protests, marches, whatever, all over the world. So I think it was just a focal point for people to re-spark their, their anti-war feelings or to possibly give voice because they had so many veterans, active duty military, and people who had family members in Iraq or Afghanistan come out to Camp Stacey that summer. So they just have a voice against the war machine. But you're right, you know, I thought if nobody else is going to ask them, what's wrong with me? I have a voice. I'm going to go ask them. Well, the way the press framed it was that you wanted a meeting as the mother of a fallen soldier. You wanted a meeting direct with George W. Bush. And he was a coward, even though they had to drive by on their way to the airport or whatever. He didn't want to meet with you. How was it finally resolved? Did you ever get a meeting with him, with all the people down there with you and with the press reporting from around the country and the world? No, George Bush never met with me that summer. And, you know, a lot of the press, though, were very hostile towards our encampment. And, you know, they were saying that I was just capitalizing on my son's death to make a political point or, you know, whatever. And after all these years, you know, 18 years since Camp Casey, I'm still demanding accountability. I'm still demanding an end to U.S. imperialism, you know, that has never stopped. But no, George Bush never met with me. He actually would say things like, well, I respect her right to protest, but, you know, I'm a busy, <laughs> I'm a busy president of the United States or whatever. And it's so weird. It ended because we said we would stay there till he left. And then if you remember Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina happened towards the end of August. So George Bush left. And so we left and we took several tons of water, toilet paper, paper towels and things that we had that people had generously donated to Camp Casey. We loaded up a bus and went to Louisiana to deliver those goods to the people who were suffering from Katrina. But then we went back several times and had Camp Casey's for probably almost the rest of George Bush's presidency whenever he was on vacation there. And then, of course, you took a lot of verbal abuse from the right-wing media. It's really amazing. Here's this war criminal. He put forces in motion illegally, destroyed over a million Iraqi lives, blew the country apart. To this day, it's in huge convulsions. And with Dick Cheney, they're now back living the life of Riley. There was a recent article from The Intercept by John Schwartz, J-O-N-S-W-A-R-Z, that asked, what are they doing now? And he took some of the major culprits. 
that were responsible for this criminal invasion of Iraq. And he started with George W. Bush. He said, well, you know, he's giving speeches for over $100,000 a speech. He's developing his painting skills. He's enjoying life. Same with Cheney. Same with Condoleezza Rice. Don Rumsfeld passed away in 2021, but he enjoyed a post-Iraq invasion career, books written, interviews on the mainstream media. As you were increasingly marginalized, they couldn't stand your moral authority. They couldn't stand the clarification of the issues that you put forward. How did you deal with this? Give us an example or give us an idea, Cindy, about how the marginalization process starts, that it starts against so many people who decide to commit truth. Well, I think it really started when I left the Democrat Party in 2007, because I think that as long, and Ralph, you know this more than probably anybody in this country, as long as you stay in the safe zone of only criticizing Republicans if you're a Democrat, or only criticizing Democrats if you're a Republican, then, you know, they give you a platform, they give you, you know, they let you use your voice on this national stage. But once I recognized that the Democrat Party were, at that point, enablers of the Bush-Cheney war of terror around the world, and I left the party, then, you know, I started to be even more marginalized. And I lost so much support, especially when Obama became president, because Obama, you know, I was running against Nancy Pelosi in 08. You were running for president in 08. And, you know, Obama was the savior. And, and to criticize him was to be racist. His first year of presidency, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. So how can, you know, there be an anti-war movement against somebody who's a Nobel Prize winner? And so just like you, I just have to be consistent with my principles, with being anti-imperialist, with being pro-humanity, and to recognize that everybody on this planet has the same existential right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as Americans do. But as we can see, that American dream has become a nightmare. And so I think that I've never really had a problem with, <laughs> with the marginalization or the attacks because I always felt I had a righteous protest. I had a righteous question that has never been answered. What noble cause? What is a noble cause for this mass murder around the world? There is nothing noble about it. Well, you know, the conservative former judge who was on Fox News for over 20 years Andrew Napolitano, we had him on the show, and he stated that the Justice Department should criminally prosecute Bush and Cheney for war crimes, that it's not too late, and they're out of office, and they're vulnerable like any other individual citizen. And of course, you know about Vincent Bugliosi's book, where yes. he recommended charging Bush and Cheney with murder right. relating to the soldiers whose lives were taken in the criminal action and invasion in Iraq, which, of right. course, would have included your son, Casey. So are you pursuing justice for Bush and Cheney in any way? Do you know anybody else is in an organized fashion? How many parents of fallen soldiers joined you in this effort? 
Well, we had several dozens of parents join us in the effort. And I know when Vincent's book came out, he got it into the hands of all of the people he felt had jurisdiction over this murder, which would have been like state prosecutors, county prosecutors. What gave me a little bit of hope was the county DA of New York County indicting and arresting Donald Trump for things I think were far less damaging and far less criminal than what the other living presidents, the George Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, I think that, you know, if a DA can prosecute Donald Trump for something less than mass murder or genocide, then maybe my DA in my county I live in can prosecute George Bush for murdering my son. There is no statute of limitations on murder. So I kind of got a defeatist attitude that George Bush and Dick Cheney were never going to be prosecuted for war crimes and crimes against humanity international crimes, but I thought this prosecution of a former president gave me some hope that maybe the other presidents can be prosecuted for their, like I said, their crimes that were far more damaging than what Donald Trump is being indicted for. As you know, when President Obama came into office, he was asked, was he going to prosecute Bush and Cheney for crimes? including the war in Iraq. And he said, we're not looking backward. Well, of course, you can't (laughs) prosecute anybody for crimes if you don't look backward. So he basically let him off the hook and proceeded to engage in his own forms of war crimes and decision to kill anybody he suspects anywhere in the world as prosecutor, judge, jury, executioner, all in secret. So there goes another eight years of lost opportunity to really put some muscle behind the myth in the United States that no one is above the law when we know that presidents are above the law constantly year after year in what they often do in the White House. So do you see any groups that are still working on trying to bring Bush and Cheney under the rule of law? You know, part of my introduction was that I was one of the the organizers of the 2018 Women's March on the Pentagon. 2019 Women's March on the Pentagon, we were really starting to get momentum. And of course, our mission was be anti-imperialist, no matter who was in office. So at that time, Donald Trump was in office. And so the Bush-Cheney-Clinton war against the Middle East was still continuing. Things, of course, things are still continuing to this day. And so, but then COVID came and we had no way we could organize anything. Now people are just starting to organize things that are in person. There was a couple of protests in Washington, D.C. this year. I think they were the first, you know, anti-war protests we've had nationally since COVID. So it's been kind of difficult. And the difficulty, Ralph, is that a lot of people who would be on our side to prosecute George Bush and Dick Cheney. They're giving George Bush and Dick Cheney passes because of their Trump derangement syndrome. So they hate Trump more than they hate George Bush and Dick Cheney or more than they love the idea of accountability, probably because one of their loved ones wasn't murdered 
in the Bush-Cheney wars or the Obama wars. What Obama, the destruction of Libya that happened under Obama and Hillary Clinton as the Secretary of State was appalling. It's egregious. It's Libya's become an open air slave market. They assassinated, you know, execution style, the leader that was trying to lead Libya and to be a, a force for good, especially on the African continent. And so, yeah, I mean, the war crimes and crimes against humanity of, you know, every single president, what happened is what I used to say about Obama He's not going to prosecute Bush because he wants the same professional courtesy when he leaves office. So, you know, these people need to be held accountable for genocide. I think you put your finger on it. The lawlessness in the White House of varying degrees of magnitude under all recent presidents, especially, has become institutionalized. And you can catch that institutionalization by the comment that you often hear. Well, they all do it. All the presidents violate the law. So what else is new? So no matter to what new level and diversity criminal violations reach under Donald Trump, that's often the argument that's used. Well, look at Clinton. Look at Bush. Look at Obama. Well, there has to be some marker. There has to be some rumble from the people saying, stop. We've got to restore the rule of law. Otherwise, Anarchy and fascism are on the horizon. Hannah? Thank you. The state hasn't seen fit to arrest Bush, Cheney, or any of the other architects of the Iraq war for their crimes. To put their priorities into context, how many times has the state arrested you for your protests? (laughs) That's also a really good question. I lost count at 20. So I was, I've been arrested at least 20 times all over the country for protesting. I got arrested right in front of Bush's ranch one time, spent the night in the McClellan County Jail in Waco. And so I just, this is, you know, every time that I get arrested <laughs> was always what I thought. You know, first of all, I never did anything violent or I never encouraged anybody to do anything violent. I was just being arrested actually exercising my First Amendment rights to, you know, freedom of assembly and speech and expression and everything. And I would talk to the arresting officer and the booking officer and my fellow inmates, I would say, you know, my son was killed in Iraq, supposedly spreading democracy to that country when his own mother can't even exercise democracy in the country that he supposedly was protecting. So it it was always really outrageous to me. And you put this in your book, right? Yes, many, many different books about, you know, my, my brushes, my brushes with law that I had never even, I'd gotten some traffic tickets, but that was all until the first time I was arrested in 2005. And then, you know, like I said, I lost count at 20 after that. Cindy? What led Casey to join the military in the first place? Thank you. That's a great question because even though the U.S. opportunistically, I believe, gave up the draft at the end of the Vietnam War, they still have a poverty draft. And so, you know, we weren't in poverty, but, you know, we're a working class family holding down more than two jobs 
per the you know breadwinners, my myself and my husband. And Casey joined because he was the oldest and he felt like he could take a burden off the family by joining the military to complete his university. He had already gotten a two-year degree from the local community college and he was ready to transfer. And his recruiter told him that he would get all this college money. He would get this huge signing bonus. He would get a laptop computer so he could take classes anywhere, anytime, any place in the world. And, you know, so all of those promises were broken. And he even promised Casey that he scored so high on the, the military entrance exam. He already had a degree. He was an Eagle Scout. There were so many things in his favor that he joined the military at a higher rank than, you know, just private. And that if there were a war, the, his recruiter told him he would never see combat because he was too valuable of a soldier. Well, Casey was killed just probably a week after he got to Iraq in combat. So I just, one of the things that I've been doing since Casey was killed was to highlight the lies of military recruiters and to say, you know, even if Casey wasn't able to go and finish his university degree. I'd rather have him on my couch playing Xbox all day than, you know, murdered in a faraway country for lies and for lies of his government and the profits of a few. So it's a very important point to not allow yourself to be sucked up into this fake patriotism or this, you know, to take a, a young person from the working class or from the inner city and promise them all of these things that seem incredible to them at the time, it's just really not worth it. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Cindy Sheehan, who epitomizes the principle, one person can make a difference. She wasn't waiting for other people. Her grief over her son's loss, directly linked to the criminal invasion of Iraq by the war criminals Bush and Cheney, led to forces being put in motion, more people getting involved, more people standing up. And if we had more people like Cindy Sheehan, they'd reach critical mass and we would be advocating peace. We'd have a department of peace and we need more. I know many of our listeners, Cindy, would want to get their reactions to you, to what you've said in the program here. Can you give them any website or any contact that would let them communicate their thoughts to you? Great. Yeah, I think the best way right now is to go to Cindy Sheehan Soapbox Newsletter, and that's at Substack. And is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners that we didn't cover before we conclude? So I have an eight-year-old granddaughter who is having a hard time putting on her seatbelt all the time. And the other day I turned around and I said, my friend Ralph Nader went to the authorities and he made driving in cars safer for you and you will wear a seatbelt because <laughs> my friend is Ralph Nader and he's sacrificed a lot for this country. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> did it work? It, well, it did. And I also explained to her, she becomes like a missile going 75 miles an hour through the windshield and she might hit me on the way out. So uh, I told, you know, she's just going through this thing. 
that personal point often always works. <laughs> yeah, it, it did work. And I said, you know, Ralph Nader's a hero, and he fought for your right to be safe in a car. So you will be safe in a car. <laughs> and and I swear to God, that's exactly what I told her the other day. Thank you very much, Cindy. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. I want to thank our guests again, William Hartung and Cindy Sheehan. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up, including Francesco DeSantis and, in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guest will be slip, trip, and fall expert Russell Kenzior. And we'll be taping that episode live on Wednesday, April 12th at 1230 p.m. Eastern. If you'd like to come and watch, go to ralphnaderradiohour.com to sign up to be in our live Zoom audience. Thank you, Ralph. Indeed, listeners, and uh, get your friends and neighbors and co-workers to watch this program. Who hasn't experienced tripping, slipping, falling? And it's one of the most common injuries of humankind. And we have the expert in the United States participating in hundreds of trials full of information, practical, legal, and alarming about what can be done about these often preventable injuries. Russell Kenzior. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, we continue our conversation with William Hartung about the Pentagon budget with Steve, David, and Hannah getting into the action. Well, let's go to Steve and David before we conclude. Thank you very much, Bill Hartung, Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and author of many books and articles alerting the American people. His record of alerts and predictions has been very accurate over the years. Steve? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Hartung. It appears that to be a left-right coalition forming between progressive Democrats who are against the war and this small fragment of Republicans who call themselves the Freedom Caucus who are looking to cut the Pentagon budget. In your opinion, is that a real coalition or their motivations so different that they would never get together to form enough to actually do that? Yeah, I think it it needs more exploration. But on the Republican side, it kind of emerged initially from the vote that brought McCarthy to the speakership. And the group that was holding out against him said he should pledge to freeze the federal budget at 2022 levels. And so partly the industry said, well, you know, that would mean cutting the Pentagon budget 75 to $100 billion. We can't do that. And in response to that, some of the members said, oh, we didn't say the freeze would affect the Pentagon or we'll go after the woke agenda there, which is not, you know, really a, anything that involves much money. And then some members said, oh, no, we're going to put it on the table. So there's, there's been kind of mixed messages from the Republicans. And however, outside of the members themselves, the head of the Heritage Foundation wrote a, a quite hard-hitting article about closing unnecessary military bases and not having our debate over Pentagon spending dictated by economics. And Trump's former, there was Christopher Miller, who briefly filled in as Secretary of Defense under Trump, has written a book where he says we could cut the Pentagon budget by 40 to 50 percent. 
which is beyond anything any other organization, left, right, or center has talked about. So there's something there. It's it's just, it's got to be concretized. And then on the Democratic side, I think the more support for the Lee Pocan bill to, you know, cut $100 billion, the better. But if some Republicans would support that bill, that would be a sign of progress, I think. And if, you know, in some cases, you don't need that many votes from the Republican side to get something done, as we saw in things like passing the War Powers Resolution in the House and Senate under Trump. So I, I think that there's some potential to be explored there, but there's there's some complications that would have to be addressed. Bill, repeat the name of the author of that book. I hadn't heard of that. Oh, uh, Christopher Miller. He just did a good forum with the Cato Institute this week, where he sort of laid out his views on this. And it was... It was he was in the Department of Defense under Trump, you say? Yeah, it was just a brief moment, you know, and leading into his lame duck period. So he, he wasn't there for long. But people were quite amazed when he came out with that statement. It's it's part of a memoir that he wrote uh, where he talks about his critique of our kind of global military enterprise. Well, David? Defense spending, I think, defines our nation's character. And so I want to circle back to something Ralph and you talked about, a war with Iran or China opening up a new market for the weapons makers Americans anthropomorphize arms dealers. We think they're human and they're not. So can you speak to the connection between our $1 trillion weapons budget and 50,000 Americans dying each year from gun violence? How much of the polarization here in America stems from weapons makers looking for a new market and that new market being us? Well, I think there's, there's a cultural strain that supports militarism at home and abroad. That's, you know, if you, if you pick up a gun, you're tougher, you're safer, and so forth. So so there's some overlap that way. The companies can be a little different. The, the small arms manufacturers are sort of a different sector, but there's there's definitely overlap. For example, all the excess weaponry from our wars overseas that was handed out to police departments. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the people who've suffered from gun violence, those communities have also lost people in, in these U.S. wars. And I, I, th I think the, you know, the, the military industry wants more weapons. They profit from global tensions. They don't necessarily, you know, get up on a soapbox and say, let's go to war with China. But they do fund conservative hawkish think tanks that make similar arguments. So it's, it's sort of like political money laundering. Somebody else's is making the case for them in a way. And I, I think, you know, if given their druthers, if we could have maximum tensions, you know, racked up a huge budget, even short of going to war, they'd be satisfied. But the problem is once you ratchet up those tensions, the prospects for war are much greater. And so I think it's reckless and irresponsible for them to deploy some of the arguments they do to, you know, stoke these tensions. Is there a way, Ralph, to debar gun manufacturers to, to say, listen, you cannot sell weapons to our cops if you're also selling weapons to the enemies of our cops, American civilians. Is there a way to do that unilaterally through the executive branch? There's always a way if you can get a statute that's constitutional, but there isn't one yet. So it's, the answer is Congress. Hannah? Institutions across the country, everywhere from the Phoenix Unified School District to the New York City Council have adopted participatory budgeting where community members build the budget and vote on the allocations directly. Could the military budget be refashioned using participatory budgeting? 
or is it not compatible, not scalable? Is lobbying too powerful? I think it would be difficult to do. I mean, I think you'd have to get the get members on board, and and if they could do that, they could also make some of those cuts and shifts themselves. But you know, there, there's an exercise that's done for educational purposes where they give people like a hundred pennies, and then they give them the categories of the budget. And one version is, what do you think we're spending on these different categories? And then the next version is, what should we be spending? And people always underestimate the huge amounts we're giving the Pentagon. And then when they make choices, the Pentagon's not the number one choice, even though it's far and away the biggest recipient. You know, as Ralph said, more than half the discretionary budget. So I think the thing I like about participatory budgeting is it gives people some ownership and some sense that, you know, this is my budget and I, I, I should have a say. And so somehow they need to have that feeling about the federal budget, that it's it's our money, it's our budget, and I don't want to see it squandered in the way it is now, given all the needs we have. So I don't know if that technique could be implemented, but I, but I, I think kind of the spirit of it, I think, would be very helpful in kind of raising public consciousness and, and, and sense of ownership. It could be a concrete nexus between the people back home and the Congress. And they could do it back home. Here's the people's military budget, summoning the senators and representatives to town meetings to discuss it, as we've talked about in the past, using the summons from the people to the members to come to the people's town meetings and agenda. That would be a very concrete nexus. Good point. Bill, any last points you want to make that we haven't covered? Well, you know, I've been doing this a long time, longer than I would like to admit, but uh, I'll admit it, since the late Carter administration. And I've seen ups and downs on this issue, but I still believe we can make a difference. It's partly because I'm stubborn, but it's partly because I see kind of some seeds of resistance to this out there that I think could be brought together to turn this thing around. So I would say people should not feel discouraged. They should feel that it's time to get more active. And Anything that people do beyond what they're doing now cumulatively can make a huge difference. And so I, I would just say people should speak out and, and take action on this issue if they want to see a, a better country, uh, more equal. No, that was been proven in the past. Two women out of New England, never active, started the nuclear freeze movement that led to nuclear arms agreements. Isn't that true? Yes, exactly. And I think something like that can be done again. Now, Steve and David join the conversation with Cindy Sheehan. Steve, David, want to pitch in here? Yeah, I'll start. Ms. Sheehan, I'm curious, were you a particularly political person before all of this happened? I ask that just because you've obviously become a remarkable activist. What prepared you to become this remarkable activist? I was very politically aware. I wasn't too active politically. I... You know, Diane Sawyer asked me the same question one time. I was being interviewed by her, and it was before Camp Casey, actually. I was in Washington, D.C. for the 2005 inauguration of George Bush to protest. And I got invited as a, like Ralph, as you guys introduced me, one of the founders of Gold Star Families for Peace. I got invited to be on Good Morning America. And while Diane was interviewing me, there was, for some reason, they put the earbud in my ear and I could hear all of the directors 
directions. And so we got through the end and she's like, my dear, how did you do that? <laughs> she goes, you remain so focused and articulate. I said, Diane, I had four kids in six years, you know, so we learned to multitask. We learned to filter out extraneous things. And that's what people said to me also when I was in Crawford. They were like, okay, Cindy, who's telling you what to say? You know, they thought like Michael Moore or George Soros were feeding me my information. I'm like, first of all, that's insulting that you, you don't think that you think that I have to have a man tell me what to say. But secondly, I just didn't fall off the pumpkin truck on Prairie Chapel Road. You know, I went to UCLA. I had careers before my son was killed. You know, I'm a smart cookie, I'm articulate, you know, and then you get a passion and you see a right that needed to be wronged. And, you know, it just, just everything kind of came together at the same time. And I just let my heart lead me to where it needed to go. Great. What are you doing now, Cindy? I have my Substack. It's called Cindy Sheehan Soapbox Newsletter. I have still my podcast that you've been on before, Ralph. I'd like to get you back on. Um, it's called Cindy Sheehan Soapbox. I have a video cast. It's with a young comrade named Dakota Lily, and we call it She Lily. And I have six grandchildren. I have four grandsons and two granddaughters and just have a six and a half month old grandbaby. So I stay pretty busy trying to stay healthy and sane in this insane nation. Tell us about the book you wrote. I wrote a book called Peace Mom. And it was, you know, it started with the death of my son and continued for a couple of years past Camp Casey. And then I wrote a book that I had wanted you to write the forward to called I Left My Marbles in San Francisco, Scandal of Federal Electoral Politics. And that was about my campaign against Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco. I rather like that book. And it talks about all the obstacles that candidates like us have to jump over to even get on the ballot. And, you know, it talks about our collaborations that we had a few times in San Francisco because your running mate was from San Francisco. And I recommend that book because I think elections are kind of a dead end for activists. I think we go vote and we promote candidates that have the same kind of things as we do. But if we really want change, then we have to do the work between elections. And then I also wrote a book that was controversial about my respect for the Bolivarian Revolution and Hugo Chavez called Revolution, A Love Story. And what was the name of the book? Again, give the name of the book your challenge to Nancy Pelosi. It's called I Left My Marbles in San Francisco. All right, David. Yes, thank you. You ran against Nancy Pelosi, who voted against the war authorization in 2002. But when she became speaker in 2007, she supported a $50 billion war supplemental. Right. Could you speak to the power that Congress has in defunding a war, even if the president yes. is a Republican and the speaker's a Democrat? Well, you know, Nancy Pelosi had already revealed her when you get to that level president speaker of the house vice president you know the senate majority leader they're all practically in the same kind of political establishment and so 
Nancy Pelosi in 06, she ran on a, she's going to have impeachment off the table for George Bush and Dick Cheney. And the first thing she did, you're right. The first thing she did at her house did as speaker was to approve the next war funding bill, which were never because of the authorization to use military force. They were, you know, never like really righteous funding bills. And so the House of Representatives has the power of the push string. The House of Representatives could turn off the money spigot at any point. And of course, since they're all in it together, they never do that. That's what they did to turn off the Vietnam War. They cut off the money. The spin that they use is so infuriating. Nancy Pelosi said, as long as our troops are in harm's way, we're gonna support them by passing the supplemental. When in fact, you can pass a supplemental that pays to bring them home. They lie and say we're protecting the troops by keeping them there. Right. The troops are always used as these pawns. And, you know, support the troops became almost like a cult-like thing. But I met with Hillary Clinton shortly after our first time we were in Crawford, Texas. And, of course, as you know and your listeners know, she was a huge supporter of invading Iraq. Her husband, you know, while he was president, devastated the country through sanctions and active bombings, partnering with the United Nations. And, you know, 500,000 Iraqi children, their deaths were worth it, according to the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, at that time. So I met with Hillary Clinton and me and another Gold Star mother and my sister, Didi, we poured out our hearts to her to come out against the war because at that point she was running for, she was thinking of running for president in 08 for the Democrat nomination. And we were like, look at, you can see that your base, the Democratic base are against this war. So many lives are being destroyed. I mean, we came to tears and she walked out of that meeting and told the press, oh, I listened to what they had to say, but we have to keep our military in Iraq to honor the sacrifices of their sons, which was absolutely the opposite of what we were telling her. Honor our children's sacrifices by bringing the rest of the troops home. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. CNN reports that seven investigators from the Centers for Disease Control fell ill, quote, while studying the possible health impacts of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. These investigators experienced sore throats, headaches, coughing, and nausea, the same symptoms many residents have reported. In testimony before the Senate in March, Alan Shaw, CEO of Norfolk Southern, said, quote, I believe that the air is safe. I believe that the water is safe. A contingent of left-wing youth at the recent protests in Israel burned their IDF enlistment orders. While this exceedingly courageous act garnered much attention on social media, the sad reality is that the overwhelming majority of Israeli youth are in fact more right-wing than older Israelis and far more right-wing than young people in most every other country. A 2021 poll written up by Haaretz revealed that, quote, nearly half of ultra-Orthodox and national religious Israeli youth expressed hatred towards Arabs and noted support for stripping them of their citizenship, a sentiment shared by 23% of secular youth. A new poll published in Forbes shows the impact of Governor Ron DeSantis' education policies, quote, 
91% of prospective college students disagree with the governor's policies. One in eight graduating high school students won't attend college in Florida due to the education policy in the state. And one in 20 current college students in the state plan to transfer because of those policies. The Huffington Post reports that Amazon spent $14.2 million on anti-union consultants in 2022, up nearly $10 million from 2021. This is clearly in response to the successful unionization vote at the JFK 8 facility under the auspices of the independent Amazon Labor Union last year. In a related story, Bloomberg reports that a federal appeals court has ruled that Elon Musk, quote, must delete his 2018 Twitter post suggesting that Tesla workers could lose stock options if they formed a union as it violated labor law. The panel of Fifth Circuit judges unanimously opined that, quote, Tesla's history of labor violations supports the NLRB's finding that employees would understand Musk's tweet as a threat to commit another violation by rescinding stock options as retaliation for union organizing. Representative Rashida Tlaib is collecting signatures on an official letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland calling on him to end the Justice Department's campaign to have Julian Assange extradited to the U.S., according to The Intercept. So far, other signatories include Reps Jamal Bowman, Ilhan Omar and Cori Bush, with Reps Rokana, Pramila Jayapal, and AOC expected to sign on before it is sent. A new report in The Intercept details the increasing size of settlements being paid out to victims of police violence in the 2020 protests, including tear gassing and, quote, kettling the police tactic of trapping and surrounding protesters, usually to carry out mass arrests. Due to the legal structures in place, local taxpayers, not police departments, will foot the bill for these settlements. In a historic shift, the Vatican has responded to calls by indigenous activists and repealed the so-called doctrine of discovery, which, quote, legitimized the colonial era seizure of native lands and formed the basis of some property laws today. The Vatican acknowledged that this doctrine, quote, did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of indigenous peoples. This was reported by the indigenous-led news service Indian Country Today. From Reuters, the Biden administration, quote, plans to send Mexico an act now or else message in the coming weeks in an attempt to break a stalemate over Mexico's decision to nationalize energy and other key resources. Under the rules of the neo-NAFTA trade agreement signed in 2020, the U.S. is entitled to international dispute talks, but has not called for them thus far, instead opting to work with the Canadian government to threaten retaliatory measures against Mexico. U.S. Republicans, meanwhile, are calling for an invasion of our southern neighbor. Bowing to ranching and mining interests, The Intercept reports President Biden is continuing a Trump-era policy of rounding up wild horses in order to clear more land for cattle grazing and extraction. Once the horses have been corralled, the mares will be dosed with contraceptives. Manda Kalimian, president of the wild horse and environmental advocacy group Kenna Foundation, is quoted saying, we feel betrayed because we thought this was an administration that really believed in wildlife protections. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate reports that Judge Reed O'Connor struck down, quote, a major provision of the Affordable Care Act requiring insurers to cover vast amounts of preventative care cost-free. These include contraception, cancer screening, the HIV prevention drug PrEP, and much pregnancy-related care. This ruling applies nationwide. Remember the egg shortage? According to CNN, CalMaine Foods, the largest egg producer in the nation, reported that their revenue doubled 
and profits surged to 718% last quarter as consumers struggled to afford the basic food item. Corporate greed, plain and simple. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour for our live Zoom taping at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time and 9.30 a.m. Pacific Time. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way.